Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guests today, they did the thing that so many of us say we'd love to do. Well, they actually did it. These were five authors who were on a panel with me live in Bryan Park to talk about their debut novels. They did it. They wrote them. They're incredible. And so today I get to share Liz Alterman, David Santos Donaldson, Francesca Jocko, Anne Hetzel, and Matt James with you. All of their books were wonderful, and hearing about how each of them went from idea to fruition and really created these unique and beautiful and incredible reads, what an honor and a thrill to share this live podcast event with you. Enjoy. A-OK. I'm so honored to have this esteemed panel of authors with me today. Um, I'm going to read their names and the name of their books. And if you just wave when I, when I call your name, that would be amazing. So my guests today are Liz Alterman, author of The Perfect Neighborhood. David Santos Donaldson, the author of Greenland. Francesca Giacco, Six Days in Rome. Anne Heltzel, Just Like Mother. Matt James, First Impressions, Off-Screen Conversations with The Bachelor on Race, Family, and Forgiveness. Is everyone mentioned? We are all met. So first of all, I've had the honor of reading all of your books, and I have to say thank you. Um, I don't read as much as I used to because of my phone, and that I've had to put it down and just absorb all of the incredible stories that the five of you have shared. And this is an incredibly eclectic panel of incredible books. So everyone, buy their books, all of them. They're great (laughs) reading. Um, I just want to start maybe by asking you guys, because some people here read your books and some people happened to walk by and saw authors and got excited so I'm gonna ask you what I as an actor find really annoying but the the phrase elevator pitch always makes me really anxious but it does help convey the idea of a short explanation of the book and then I want you to just sort of share briefly like the inspiration in a few lines of like where the genesis of this story came from. So let's start at the end um, with Just Like Mother and horror, thriller, amazing, this. Yeah, so this is uh, my first novel for adults. It's a horror novel and um, for context, I've always wanted to write a horror novel, but was a little bit honestly afraid of 
uh, what people might think of me, friends and family, when I really expose the darkness of my brain. So here we are. Luckily, people are sticking with me still. This book is um, about the cult of motherhood. And that's that's the very short elevator pitch. It's about two cousins who uh, were estranged. They were closest children, came together as adults in their 30s and uh, became close again. And one of them has become wildly successful. The other is struggling a little bit more. And as they come back together, some of the uh, terrors of their childhood come back to haunt them. And we start to realize that things in present day aren't quite as they seem. Matt? Yes. Um, I would say that the, the theme around my book and the elevator pitch is uh, I felt an obligation to people who tuned in to watch my season of The Bachelor to, to dive into the areas of my life that I feel like we kind of brushed over. Uh, there's a lot to, to cover in, in a season and you can't get to everything. So, um, you know, I don't know everything. I'm only 30 years old, but uh, there's a lot of life uh, experiences that people reached out to me about that resonated with their story. And I feel like people don't care about your story until you've made it through the other side. And um, I wanted to do this to uh, honestly give people, uh, empower other people to, to empower other people. No, I just wanted to, to give other people the opportunity to uh, relate with my story and open up about their truths. And I think that that's what this book leaves a lot of people with. And we'll get into that later on. Um, the elevator pitch, essentially, for my book, uh, my main character is supposed to go to Rome with her boyfriend. She finds out he's married, so they break up and she goes anyway um, for six days, hence the title. The, you know, the, the real gist behind the book, it's a story of self-exploration, self-discovery, love lost and found, art, creativity all um, against the backdrop of Rome. Uh, I would say the tagline for the perfect neighborhood is, think you know your neighbors, think again. <laughs> so it's set in what seems like an idyllic community. And I myself have always lived in New Jersey suburbs, for better or worse. And uh, I've learned, unfortunately, that sometimes the most beautiful communities can kind of harbor the darkest secrets. And so what happens in this story is a five-year-old boy goes missing on his walk home from kindergarten. And sort of making things a little bit worse is the fact that his babysitter is late to show up at his house. And his mom has recently gone back to work. And so what I tried to focus on are the themes of parental guilt, maybe where a mom might feel guilty, a dad won't. And also the babysitter in this story is harboring a secret of her own. So really it's all about what lies beneath the surface in an otherwise seemingly beautiful neighborhood. So thank you. So uh, Greenland. Uh, the elevator pitch is a, a New York elevator pitch in one of these skyscrapers, so, ah. so it takes a little bit longer. <laughs> but but uh, Greenland is about the the narrator and protagonist is Kip Starling, and he's a black 
Caribbean British queer writer who's moved to Brooklyn to become a writer. Uh, and he has written a historical novel about the famous British writer E.M. Foster, who had his uh, secret love affair with a black Egyptian tram conductor during World War I in Alexandria, Egypt. And Kip has written a novel about this, but uh, this novel is not having any success uh, getting picked up. Uh, until finally he meets an, an editor, and the greatest editor he can imagine, who is interested, but there are two caveats that she gives him. She's interested in it only if he rewrites it from Muhammad's point of view, and if he does it in three weeks, because her publishing house is merging and she only has three weeks before she can acquire this book. So he sets about to do this, a frantic pace to write this book from Muhammad's point of view, uh, with Morgan, as E.M. Foster was called. And as he begins to write this book, uh, it's what my editor calls a Proustian portal opens up. As he writes Muhammad's story, his own life starts to come into the story and interfering with his writing of it. Uh, Muhammad and he have all these things in, in common. They're both black, they're both queer, they're both in relationships with, with older white men. They're negotiating colonialism and finding their own identity in whiteness. And eventually Muhammad starts to possess Kip and then strange things happen. Uh, and eventually they end up in Greenland, of all places, where Kip goes to discover what his true voice really is. Thus the title, Greenland. Greenland. <laughs> it strikes me, as I, as I listen to all of you talk about this, your books, what's different about this moment is that COVID happened. Um, and I imagine most of you wrote some or all of this book during the pandemic based on my understanding how publishing works and timelines. Um, that may not be true for all of you, but if it is, I'm really curious, um, even though these are debut novels or, or a debut memoir, as it were, in Matt's case, obviously at some point in your lives, you've written a lot of other things. You and started as a YA novelist. Uh, Liz, you, you are a journalist as well. So I wonder, I know for me as an actor, when I'm out in the world, like listening in on other conversations, observing people on the subway, so much of that is what feeds me when I'm creating a character. And I wonder as writers, being sort of cut off from the world in the way that you were, how did that affect your writing positively, maybe completely positively in terms of less distractions, but negatively in terms of the life force that usually helps inspire? So. I want you all to read in a little bit, but I'm just, it popped into my head to know like what that journey was. And maybe we can just go down the row and talk about that a little bit if you have thoughts. And if you don't, no pressure. Starting me? Sure. Oh. So yeah, um, so I got, I, I got the call from my agent that uh, we had a meeting with the publisher who wanted, from HarperCollins, who wanted to publish my novel. Uh, and she wanted a meeting uh, the next day and I had COVID. And I said, no, I can't do this. But this is like, you know, I've been waiting for this forever. So I, so I, uh, I, got, I went, got through the call and we got the deal. Um, but I almost didn't care less <laughs> because I was so sick with yeah. COVID. So it didn't hit me until later what had actually happened. But it was actually very fortunate in a way because, well, first of all, I'm a little bit of a hermit. So it, it didn't bother me so much. But... Um, it gave me something to do and a world to escape in and be in uh, where I didn't sort of miss the external world too much because there was so much going on that I had to do. 
Uh, and in fact, my editor asked me to increase parts of the novel at the end that take place in Greenland, and I've never been to Greenland. So I did all this research online, uh, reading lots of books, but then also watching tons of YouTube videos posted from people from Greenland and, and, and documentaries about it. And I almost felt like I was virtually there because everything was virtual. You know, when I was talking to my family and my friends, they were all uh, on Zoom, you know? And so I felt kind of like I was, it kind of uh, was a good moment for me to sort of hanker down and, and, and finish writing this book. Liz? Um, I would agree completely in that COVID kind of gave me uh, a chance to really focus without any of the social distractions. I'm a mom, so often I, pre-COVID, I would be driving my children to events and maybe while they were on a field, I would pull out my laptop and try to write some things down or I've been known to jot down ideas on the back of a CVS receipt, which thank God are long enough for me to almost write a full chapter. But um, at the same time, I completely agree with what you're saying. I, if I go to a Starbucks and there's a long line, I am going to eavesdrop as much as I can for a great snippet of dialogue or just the interpersonal relationships of a mother and a child or a couple. I love that just to spark ideas. And so I did definitely miss that during COVID. But I think uh, without COVID, I would probably still be on chapter five <laughs> of this novel. So it gave me a chance to sneak off to my attic where I write and just kind of hide out and not feel guilty about missing social obligations. So th that was sort of the silver lining for me. Francesca, not only is Six Days in Rome just an incredible novel to read and get lost in from the relationship standpoints, but you do feel like you get to be in Rome for six days, which was for me an incredible escape since, although based on Instagram, it looks like everyone I know is in Rome right now. I'm not. I'm here with you guys. Um, I imagine you have been to Rome. Um, so maybe those experiences were with you while writing the book, even though you couldn't be there, or did you still go? Yeah, I mean, not to rub it in, but I got back two days ago. Okay, thanks a <laughs> um, lot. I've, Rome is a place I've been a lot over different times in my life. I've been alone, I've been with friends, I've been with family. Um, but I was, and the last time I went before just now was January 2019. Um, so I got a trip in before COVID, um, but I was lucky in that the first draft of the novel was done before COVID. So I didn't really write during COVID, I edited during COVID, and it's perfect for editing because um, you've got nothing else to do. And um, you know, another really wonderful sort of happy accident was I got to travel in my mind when I couldn't go anywhere. Um, I think my COVID experience was different than everyone else's on the panel, uh, just based on the fact that I was uh, actively dating uh, 30 plus women uh, <laughs> while everyone was quarantining. Um, and in doing that, you know, um, when you're dating somebody, uh, if you want it to be a good experience from my, uh, you know, experience, if you want it to be, uh, you know, meaningful you have to share things that are important to you and that uh bring out a vulnerable side of you and um i did all those things with these women uh in hopes of meeting someone that you know um i could potentially spend the rest of my life with and um 
as America watched those conversations back, I had people reaching out after every episode, resonating with some part of my story. So I wasn't even really planning on ever writing a book um, until I found how much strength people were drawing from my experiences and that they weren't alone in experiencing those things. So that's kind of when I had this epiphany where I wanted to empower other people to share their stories through my story. So. Um, I, so I wrote the book prior to COVID. Um, I actually sold the book two weeks before everything shut down, which really felt like, a, honestly, a stroke of luck, um, simply because there was a lot of anxiety in the publishing community in those early months, I think, how uh, sales and you know how book acquisitions would be impacted. So I really lucked out in that way. But uh, for the rest of it, I mean, it was a two-book contract. So I have been working on another book. And it has been very negatively impacted by COVID, honestly, just because, I mean, for one, this book was born of a, for me, specific New York experience of being in my early to mid 30s as a single person, feeling a lot of pressure to settle down and form a family. And that's sort of where the idea came from. And it came from those communications, people around asking me questions and you know, saying things like, well, don't worry, you still have time and um, it can still happen for you and things when I, w I was very happy already and you didn't necessarily, I hadn't been worried. So there's that. But additionally, just in terms of process, um, I work full time as uh, an editorial director at a publishing house. And the only way I got this book done was to leave work around six or seven, go to a hotel lobby, sit in the hotel lobby and have that energy around me. So I sort of felt like I was still engaged in the world for those couple of years when I was only working and saying no to everything else. So not having that has been extremely difficult. Um, and I actually am no longer New York City based. So those things haven't really returned for me. And I'm having to figure out some new routines. <laughs> I think this would be a great time. I have had the pleasure of reading every word of all of your books, but not everyone here. So why don't we start? Do you want to do you want to read a little bit of um, just like Mother? Sure. And because there are so many of you, uh, I'm going to just ask that you guys keep the readings even shorter than maybe you prepared, so that everyone gets a shot, and also everyone here is going to buy the book and get to hear all of it. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um this is from a scene uh, where, as I mentioned, two cousins come back together after two decades apart. And uh, they are doing a vacation weekend in the Catskills at the home of one. And, and it sort of has just come out that Andrea, uh, the very successful cousin, has her own lifestyle business. She's doing coaching surrounding grief. Uh, at the loss of a child as well as preparation for motherhood and her main product that has earned her a fortune are these very lifelike baby dolls. So this is where we're at in the scene. I've heard of new life, I admitted, but I didn't know your life coaching was part of the business, Andrea. I guess I assumed they were separate things. Nope, one and the same. We have a top psychoanalyst on board acting as a consultant as well as some leading educators. I can't say who, NDAs and all. Expecting and grieving, start to finish, I remarked before I could stop myself. It's just the beginnings, Maeve, Emily corrected, and the Olivia doll is helping Andrea and Rob ease into their new stage of life. It's part of the process. Andrea, Andrea and Rob had just lost their own baby. It's true that I'm beta testing our product to help cope with my own grief, Andrea said. Kind of a perk of the business. I'm hoping you'll even participate if you like. The technology is incredible, I admitted, staring. The doll was uncannily lifelike. I gazed at it awestruck. What do you need me to do? Just while you're here, you need to treat Olivia as you would any other baby while I'm engaging with her, Andrea said. Like playing house, I laughed, incredulous. 
May, we've been working toward this for a long time. All of us have. Please don't diminish our efforts, Emily frowned. It's extraordinary. This will change so many women's lives for the better. It's our chance to make a real difference. Andrea clasped my hand in hers. May, she said, calling me by the name she used when we were kids. I think it might help me. I know it's a little weird, but can you try? That's all I ask. I looked into my cousin's eyes, which were so earnest, so full of emotion. I was here to forge a new path for us, after all. If this was how I could help make up for upending her life so many years ago, well, there were worse and stranger things. Okay, I told her, squeezing back, grateful for her hand in mine again, back where it was meant to be. I'll do whatever you need. Her face broke into a smile. We're so glad to have you. Now let's put your things down, shall we? And Emily, you too. Let me hold her first. Emily reached for the doll. Of course, Andrea replied, smiling up at her. Say hi to Aunt Emmy, sweetie, she told the doll as she passed it to Emily. Then she shot me a rare wink. Thank you, she mouthed silently. She gave me a grateful smile. Hi, Olivia, Emily said. Olivia blinked twice. Her nose had the perfect upturned slope of her mother's. No, I corrected myself, not her mother. She was just a doll. But there was something so real about her it made me hurt. How many photos and videos of Olivia had the designers had to study in order to get her just right? She's beautiful, I told them, and was immediately glad I did. Andrea appeared pleased. Well, Andrea said, babies certainly are expensive enough to make. Best to get it right. Truman barked from within the car and then came bounding out of the back seat to where we stood, spittle flying from his jowls as he ran. Andrea backed away from the previously docile doll. Truman was suddenly not only wide awake, but also jittery, the ridge of fur on his back standing skyward. I'm so sorry, I said, even though the dog wasn't mine. Quiet, Truman. I reached for his collar, whistling softly, but he growled viciously, baring his teeth, and I loosened my grip. As Andrea grabbed Olivia from Emily, cradling the doll protectively to her chest, Truman lunged forward. In turn, Andrea took a step back toward the base of the broad stone staircase that led up to the porch. The edge of her heel connected awkwardly with the lowest step, not quite landing. It happened almost as if in slow motion. She lost her balance and tumbled over, landing on her tailbone. Olivia flew from her arms, and the doll soared through the air against the backdrop of the gray sandstone exterior. I gasped and reached for Olivia, missing her by inches. The baby's head hit the ground first. Then Truman was on Olivia, sinking his teeth into the soft, fleshy folds of her face. By the way, they talk so much about like writers writing about things that scare them or Everything in your book really scared me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Cults, motherhood, um, forced motherhood. It's really incredible what's happened politically since this book came out. Um, and it really touches on so many of these themes about autonomy and what it means to be a woman without a child in this world. And I really appreciated it on every level. And it is friggin' terrifying, by the way. Thank um, you. You're, wel you're welcome. Matt, your book was terrifying in other ways. <laughs> 30 people um, trying to give them, that's a lot. That's a lot of women. Um, but really amazing to me. And you, we talked a, a little bit before we started this panel that that kind of job that you took on demanded a certain level of vulnerability, um, whether you wanted it to be that or not. And this book is so open-hearted and so beautiful. Um, and so if there's a passage you want to share, by the way, it's about The Bachelor, but by that I mean it's about this man who played The Bachelor. It's uh, deeply honest. Yeah. My palms are sweating. That was that was yeah. intense. I'm definitely going to have to read that. Yeah. When the dog grabs the ba yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um I'm I'm probably the world's slowest reader, so I'm actually not going to read a passage, but I will tell an anecdote from the book. Perfect. Um there uh to to the point just made about having to be vulnerable throughout the show so that, you know, people knew uh, the women knew that I was interacting with that I was for real and that um, they could be comfortable around me because, you know, 
I'm just like them. Like I've had similar life experiences. And the one that I want to share with y'all uh, was about uh, a, a moment in time that had to do with my grandfather on my mom's side. And um, my dad is black, born in Nigeria, and my mom is white, and her parents were born in Italy. So um, my mom's side, the white side, never really approved of the relationship that my mom and my dad had. And so growing up, it was pretty evident when myself and my brother were around the cousins who were white uh, in terms of gift giving, in terms of affection that was shown. And um, there was a, a point in time where my grandfather, my, my mom's dad, um, who you know didn't really like us being around, um, actually needed my brother and I to come to his aid. Um, there was a, a really serious situation where he'd fallen over at, at the house and um, he called my mom to have John and I go over there and, and help him. And it was this uh, turning point in our relationship where we took back the power um, that he had held over us and uh, we decided to you know show grace and forgiveness in a moment where um, you know as a kid and as someone who had been you know um, treated unfairly uh, throughout you know holidays and, and birthdays uh, I won't go any further into it but it was a very powerful moment where we ended up going over there and um, when those types of, of moments were shared on the show people were reaching out about similar relationships in their family uh, and giving them you know the power to have those conversations with people that they were estranged with and show forgiveness uh so yeah can i say what's really extraordinary having read the book when you read his book it feels just like that mm -hmm. like he's telling you these stories um with such honesty and uh that's not an easy thing so thank you for that um shall we continue Francesca, do you want to read in Italian or are you going to read no. it? What do you want to do? No, no. Um, I won't do that to people here. <laughs> um, I'll just read something very brief from the prologue. So hopefully no introduction necessary. Um, my main character has just gotten to Rome and she's uh, talking to herself as so much of this book is. <laughs> just that's a disclaimer. Um, the sun is relentless, the heat inescapable. It is the middle of the afternoon, the beginning of the summer. The bougainvillea will continue to weave its way around door frames and windows and climb the walls for months. Walls that must have always been that Roman shade of orange, that color I've never seen anywhere else. I'm here for just a few days alone. The trip was planned months ago for and with someone else, but he's gone now in a way that's finally starting to feel comfortable or natural or at least not a constant source of pain. He's gone and I'm very much not. I move at my own pace. My face is still, my mouth relaxed, just short of a smile. The soles of my sandals slap the stone beneath me too loudly, even when I try to take lighter steps. I hear lunch dishes being washed behind closed windows and cracked open doors. There are no tourist attractions in this part of the city, no famous fountains or recognizable relics, no remarkable view from anywhere. It is the sliver of time in the afternoon when everyone sleeps. I'm walking just to walk, the sharp incline stretching the backs of my legs. The sun hits my bare arms, the base of my neck in a way I know will tan, not burn. 
A group of monks passes to my left, speaking softly, taking deep drags of their cigarettes. Two of the five look up to smile at me. I purse my lips in chaste response, wondering how much they must be sweating under their robes, that unyielding black polyester. Their designer sunglasses and expensive watches catch the light. My past tense love, the man who's not here but should be, was raised Roman Catholic, once an altar boy, still wears and maybe believes in the golden saint on a chain around his neck. He claimed to have briefly, decades ago, considered the seminary. Months earlier, while looking over my shoulder as I bought our plane tickets, he mused out loud. I love seeing priests and nuns in Rome. They always look so happy, like they just won the lottery. <laughs> His hand enclosed my shoulder. Comforting, isn't it? That kind of certainty. Then, after a sip of wine, no, it's better than the lottery. It's like getting tenure. Everlasting tenure, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> I imagine what these monks might say if I told them about him, if any of them would hear my lapsed confession. This is Liz Alterman reading from The Perfect Neighborhood, Thank which you. is definitely a thriller. Thank you, yes. Uh, so the part I'll be starting with is the top of chapter three, uh, told from the point of view of Cassidy, the babysitter who was late on the afternoon that Billy Barnes, the five-year-old boy, goes missing. And I just would like to thank Gail, who's in the audience, uh, plays Cassidy or narrates Cassidy's part in the audiobook. So thank you, Gail. I'm going to try to do it as beautifully as you did, but I doubt I'll be able to, but thank you. Okay. Do you think he's in there? He asks. Billy, I mean. Do you think he's in there? I narrow my eyes and stare at him. The harsh glare of floodlights turns Kyle the yellowy white of a potato chip. The lawn surrounding the pond shines like that cheap plastic grass you stuff in an Easter basket. Everything looks fake in this creepy glow. And for the millionth time since Thursday, I wish none of it were real that I'm tripping like the guys in my gym class who mess around with microdosing and mushrooms. It's 10 p.m. The police and the mayor agreed that searching the pond for Billy's body should be done at night so it won't alarm local families. That's Oak Hill for you. Never let anyone think this is anything other than a quaint little Norman Rockwell town. Like if you search for a missing kid during the day, Oak Hill won't top those stupid 10 best towns to raise your family lists. Everyone around here makes a part-time job out of pretending their lives are perfect. Meanwhile, they can't go seven seconds without gossiping about one another. I would know. Since Thursday, stories about Billy, his family, and me have been spreading faster than lice through a preschool. Eight, maybe 100 people have come out tonight. Only a handful look worried. The rest seem straight up interested, like they've got a front row seat to the best show in town. I imagine them shoveling down their dinners and reminding their spouses, set the DVR. We've got ourselves some real live drama here in Oak Hill tonight. Vultures. They talk to the reporters whose news vans ring the pond, and I lean a little closer to the tree. Mom says I shouldn't be here. It'll only make me feel worse. Maybe she's right. 
And our last selection is going to be read by David Santos Donaldson from Greenland. Okay, so uh, I already gave you the setup when we talked about it earlier, so I'm just going to pick up, and to keep it short, I'm going to read a little bit of Kip's uh, voice and then a little bit of the chapter he's writing from Mohammed's point of view. Here I go, Mohammed's story, a draft the literary legend cannot refuse. I only have three weeks. Time is of the essence. I'll have to work nonstop. I'm not leaving this basement study until I've finished the entire manuscript. To secure my success, I've taken some drastic measures. I've boarded up the door from the inside with seven planks of two by four pine wood nailed across the door frame. If I leave this room, it will not be on impulse. I have all the necessary provisions with me five boxes of premium saltine crackers, three tins of Cafe Bustello, and 21 one-gallon jugs of Poland spring water, occupying almost all of the desk surface. That's all I need until I'm done. I can't escape. I can't sabotage my life's dream. Drastic times require drastic measures, don't they? The logistics of this endeavor are not pretty, I must warn you. I have my essential writing supplies, my MacBook with its power cord, an English Oxford Dictionary, uh, the shorter two-volume set. My iPhone is stored away in the bottom drawer in case of emergencies. I barely get a signal down here anyway. And I've turned on the off the internet router. I want no distractions from the external world. Yet there are the internal distractions to consider, the bodily necessities. In the study, there's a tiny half bathroom, as they call it, a little water closet. But we never use it. The toilet doesn't flush properly. I'll save flushing for when it's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, I'll piss down the sink. That ought to help. They say W.H. Auden, while at dawn at King's College, customarily tinkled in his study sink. The expediency of poets. Art is a savage undertaking. Muhammad's story, a mind like winter. Winter in Alexandria is my favorite season. It's wet and gloomy, but it can also be a strange comfort, like when ice is held to your bare skin. It's bracing, vitalizing. Somehow you even miss the burn when it's lifted. You crave it again as much as you fear it. I look back fondly on my winters in Alexandria, especially a particular winter, two years ago when I was 21. My life changed then. Morgan, he was the icy sting I craved, that I feared, his wintry touch comforted, but then it scorched me too. That winter of 1917 was no different from most. I only wish winters in Alexandria were colder. Even when there's a chilly sea wind rushing in on the corniche, I am stirred to attention like a soldier. Heat makes one slow and lazy, but the cold prepares one for war. I want a mind like winter. Why else do the northern countries dominate us Egyptians? I would love to see snow just once, to feel it. I dream of escaping not only from this miserable cell, but from Egypt entirely, far away from all civilization. What good has it done me? Have all the many books from the great Alexandrian library made me immune to heartbreak? Am I any more fit to survive alienation from the beloved? Oh, to be free and roam the Arctic wildernesses, wilderness. If I were an Eskimo, I could trek through the ice and freezing winds, and I can find safety by making my own igloo. Then I'd know I was truly fit for survival. A 
Okay, two things. Can you tell A, that David was a Juilliard actor student, <laughs> and also that his godfather was Sidney Poitier? I think, I think from that reading alone, you can tell the legacy that lives in this man's body. Um, as you can see, this is just an extraordinarily, um, it's like a banquet. Uh, a poo-poo platter of incredible different types of writing. Um, I want to do like a lightning round that is a little silly for the moment, but just to get to know you guys as people, rather at now that your books have presented like the literary part of yourselves. So we're just going to go down the line. We'll start with, wait, I want to make sure, is it Anne or Annie? Anne. Okay, I've been saying Anne, right? I just had a momentary anxiety attack, and I just want to make sure while You're there's... Fine. Okay, fine. Anne, Anne, Anne. Um, I want to ask you, what deceased author do you wish was your seventh grade English teacher? I am really bad at these kinds of questions. Do I have to go first? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, seventh grade, you said? Well, my favorite author then was Fitzgerald, which is so cheesy, but... That's all I can think of. It would be okay. Fitzgerald. So the writing was on the wall a long time ago for what you would do as a grown-up lady. Um, okay, Matt. Did you have a, a different title for the book than the title that is now your book's title? Um, I did not. And I also want to answer that first question. Shel Silverstein. Yes. Way better Shel Silverstein. <laughs> that is still on my coffee table. Oh, one, yeah. The, I mean, and those, I'm a grown-up lady. Those are the best. Yeah, those are some of the best. The best. Um, okay. Francesca. Um, what is a, a punctuation mark that you or your editor think that you overuse? Um... Probably the comma, but it's a close tie with the M dash. Um, and when I was doing copy edits, it turned it was turned a little more contentious than it needed to. It's like don't mess with my commas, but do that's not. literally their job to mess with my commas. Yes. So. Well, uh, yes. I want to do a panel on editors because I think it, it they are all so uniquely different. And, and the process is always similar yet different for everyone, but I would love, can we do that, Brian Park? Can we have <laughs> editors? Thank you. Um, okay. Did you have a beginning or ending in mind when you sat down to write your book? Ms. Liz. Yes, I would say I had the beginning and I had the ending, but I had no middle. So uh, I think that was that was a challenge for me. I knew I wanted the book to start with the gossipy voices of the neighborhood. And I sort of knew who the villain was and how I wanted it to end. But the middle was just a giant blur. And I would say I would hit 11,000 words and say, I can't keep going. Then I'd hit 28 and say, I can't keep going. And so I just kind of forced my way through to get to that ending. But. Well, you figured it out. And the structure of your book is amazing. I love how oh, we bounce back and you. forth between the different townsfolk and learn their point of view. And when the reveal happens of uh, the whodunit part of it, completely floored me. I oh, had no idea. You. I was never ahead of it. So Good. I'm so happy to hear that. Bravo. <laughs> thank you. Um, how long, David, yeah. do you think you have to catch your reader's attention? You as a major reader yourself, and did you, did you kind of play by the same rules you play as a reader, as a writer? Yes. That's a good question. 
because I'm I'm I feel almost embarrassed to admit that I am I am a very uh, lazy reader. I read a lot, but if something doesn't capture me in the first paragraph, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, I read 50 pages in and put it down. If uh, you know, maybe maybe three pages, which is very uh, embarrassing to admit because I know that some things are worth it. And I've gone back like for years. I never read Faulkner because. I just, it didn't capture me, and then finally I did, and I, I just fell in love with it. So I know it's not a good trait. But as a writer, I am aware that I have some readers who are like me, so I want to capture them as soon as possible. I want to put something right up front that's going to wake them up or at least want them to know, what okay, what's going to happen next? So did so. you rewrite over and over again the first sentence, or was it pretty clear to you right away how to begin? Uh, over and over again. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have one million more questions for you guys, but these lovely audience members are here and may have some questions of their own. There are uh, two fabulous people, or one fabulous person with a microphone. Um, so raise your hand if you have a question. Um, congratulations, all of you. This is huge. I know your debut novelist. That's amazing. Um, I'm curious about the writing process itself. Like, were you writing before and after work? Were you writing on the weekends? How did you find an agent? Um, just because I know this is your first time, so I'm just curious how you got to this place. Um, thank you. Who is the most first-timey on this panel? Who is the very first time being published here? Raise your hand. Okay. So, so David and Matt, why don't you take this one? Oh, uh, oh! Now I, I wasn't listening to the question. I thought everyone well, else there was going to answer it. Well, there were many questions. Uh, so Process, <laughs> agent. So, uh, so I also work as a psychotherapist. So I have like I, I see my uh, clients or patients uh, three days a week, and the other three days a week I, I work as a writer. Uh, and I and I work pretty much like I do, like I'm going to work. I get up, I have breakfast, and I sit down, and I work all day. I take a break for lunch, and I work until six or seven in the evening. I know it's a lot of people, you know, are grabbing hours here and there, but that works best for me. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of slow, so I need a long time to sort of get into it. Uh, and getting an, getting an agent and it's like a you know it's like finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> It's so hard, and uh, I feel so. I feel for everyone who's been through the process because I have. Uh, and you really, it's, it's like you know, it's like dating on a on an app. You have to put out a hundred, get a hundreds of uh, what do they call them, frogs before you get your bachelor prints. So, <laughs> <laughs> but keep on. You know, I just have to, you just have to be super persistent. Uh, more than you would ever think is humanly possible to to do this. It's. You have to be crazy and obsessed. <laughs> Mr. James? Um, I, I was just, um, <clears throat> I just m made sure that it stayed fun, you know? Uh, and when it got not to be fun, uh, then I stopped. So there's days and weeks where I put a lot of time in, and then there's days and weeks where, you know, I didn't put any time in. Um, and that helped a lot. It, it honestly helped us stay on track. So um, it, it, I don't, uh, yeah, that was my experience, and, and it worked for me, so. And you said in your intro that you sort of made a joke about the people in your life sticking with you, even after you've written such, um, I don't know, 
honest sort of uh, social commentary about motherhood in our culture. And this is sort of for anyone who wants to jump in, but I'll start with Anne. How exposed do you feel when you put something out? I mean, obviously, I don't know that you grew up in a cult or not. I'm assuming that that's a fictional... I did not. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to scoff, though. That was inappropriate. Um, no, I, I, did, I mean, I grew up um, in a fairly religious household, and there were echoes of that, certainly. Um, I was raised Catholic, and uh, I think that I was also raised in the Midwest, and there were certain expectations uh, that I felt um, that weighed on me heavily. And I also, I think you know, part of my upbringing was sort of like there was a way to be like a, a quote unquote nice girl. And that is the part that made me most frightened about sharing the story. It wasn't about people I didn't know reading it. It was about friends and family and people from my hometown where a lot of my family still is reading it. But I think that I made the mistake of not giving them enough credit, honestly, because um, like all of my aunts um, all read it and loved it. And people have been so supportive. And I, I was, I was being, I was feeling a lot of anxiety that wasn't necessary to feel. I'm glad. Um, is there someone else? I don't want to have the mic. Is there somebody else who wants to ask a question in the audience? Do you guys write the titles? And if not, are you happy with the titles? Yes, I, I wrote my title and I'm happy with it. Same here. <laughs> uh, mine had a different title. Mine was originally called People in Your Neighborhood. And that was based on a line of dialogue. But... Um, my publishing house suggested other titles, and I'm glad that they did, because when I think about it, people in your neighborhood would take up a ton of real estate on the cover. So I'm very grateful they helped me out on that one. Um, my novel had a different title. It was called The Ecstasy for a lot of reasons. Um, my agent gave it this title because she felt strongly that Rome should be in the title, and I have to agree. Yeah, this was the first iteration, and um I thought it was pretty fitting. Anybody else in the audience? Okay, so I just want, we have like a few more minutes left and maybe we can just go down and, and sort of talk about what, briefly, so everyone gets a turn, what you hope people take away. Some of you have sort of talked about that before, but what do you feel like, I will have been successful if the takeaway from my book is anyone can go all at the same time <laughs> I'll, I'll start um honestly that that sense of there's there's no right way to be a woman um it, it, i hope that people don't feel the anxiety i felt in just expressing who they are um i guess uh mine would be to to take risks and uh don't live with any regret because you learn from everything that you go through in life um, I think the message is ultimately one of self-acceptance. Um, and also, you never know what can happen when you decide to be brave. I like that. Um, I would say I hope that people are just entertained for a few hours. And I love, I'm hoping that people won't guess the ending and it'll be a surprise. And I can just provide people with a few hours of escape from what has become an increasingly chaotic world. And uh, I also would like people to think about maybe that you don't always know what's going on in someone else's family. That's, I think, a key theme. So thank you. I agree. I would like people to be entertained. Uh, but it's, a, you know, the book deals with some heavy issues. Uh, and uh, I personally don't feel it's the role of uh, fiction to be sort of 
giving messages and didactic. It's for me. It's more about opening questions. So I hope the reader uh, questions things in their life about how they how they negotiate intimacy and what what social. Uh, what social structures, uh, things like uh, obviously whiteness or uh, capitalism or all these things, how they impact our intimate relationships and what our relationships to these things are. So that's what I hope people question when they read the book. Well, I feel like these are all such literary, elegant pieces of work, like truly elegant and so generous of all of you. Um, because there's so much of each of you in this book, even though they are not called the David, Liz, Francesca, Anne story, and Matt, yours is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I really thank all of you for being here today. I feel so lucky to be in conversation with such inspirational artists. And all of you here today get the opportunity to have your book signed by these incredible authors. So they're going to stay put. Um, and feel free to come up to them with your book and introduce yourselves and say hi. I'm here most Wednesdays talking to really extraordinary, extraordinary writers, which I feel really grateful for. So thank you all for being here today. Thank you, Brian Park and Susie and Nancy and everybody here for making this really an incredible experience for all of us. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.